That's classified. It's what? It's classified. It had been deemed classified. And B, that footage is highly classified. Classified. It's classified. You can't tell right. anybody, but... People need to know. Welcome to CIO Classified, where you'll find candid conversations with the world's leading CIOs. In each episode, we have two different CIOs discuss a single topic. This week, we were joined by Paolo Negri and Martin Payton. Paolo is the co-founder and CTO at Contentful. He is a lifetime developer who has taken Contentful from being a simple idea to the leading content platform for digital-first businesses. Martin is the CTO at Kinencarta. Over the past 20 years, he has been everything from a developer, consultant, to CTO, working with some of the most prestigious organizations in the world. Paolo and Martin discuss the importance of no-code and low-code tools, the benefits of going headless, the future of digital experiences, and much more. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from today's sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Box, Okta, Slack, and Zoom. Modern employees demand the best tools at work. If your company wants to embrace the modern work environment, you need best-of-breed tools like Box, Okta, Slack, and Zoom. This episode of CIO Classified is brought to you by Okta. Okta is a complete access management platform for your workforce and customers, securing all your critical resources from cloud to ground. Okta ensures your employees and customers have access to the right tools at the right time from any location and any device. Learn more about the leader in identity-driven security at okta.com. That's O-K-T-A dot com. And now here's your host, Cassidy Williams. Welcome to CIO Classified. My name is Cassidy Williams, and I'm an engineer at Netlify, and I am so excited to be here with you today. Um, today, we have Ben here as my co-host. How are you, Ben? I'm doing well. How are you, Cassidy? I am great, and I am so excited to introduce our two guests. First of all, we have Paolo Negri. How are you today, Paolo? I'm good. Uh, good evening, and uh, thank you for having me. Great. And we also have Martin Payton. How are you today? Really good. Thank you. And again, thank you for having me. I am so excited to be chatting with both of you today. I, I actually use some of the technologies that, that y'all work with. And so, first of all, I would love to ask you, Paolo, first, what do you do at Contentful? What, what's your role? And, and uh, it looks like you're a co-founder and CTO there. Sure. Yeah. And uh, yeah, my role as CTO at uh, Contentful, I really set the technological strategy. And uh, this strategy has an influence, direct influence on uh, how we build and architect uh, internally Contentful, uh, but also has a role in influencing uh, how the product fits in the broader technology context. So uh, it's really a role that is in between, you know, an internal and external function. And uh, on a day to day, I directly uh, manage the product and engineering organization of uh, of Contentful. Cool. So easy job, right? <laughs> yeah, so tough. Some, some days easy. <laughs> oh, that's good. Paolo, do you think uh, you could give us just a, a quick introduction to Contentful? Sure. Contentful is a modern uh, content platform, and uh, we pioneered uh, the idea of uh, headless content management. And uh, over the years, we evolved it with concepts like the application framework, uh, which is the foundation of the platform that we launched last year. And uh, we keep on building uh, on top of it. We, for some example, the two Contentful applications that we launched in March this year, which are specific application for uh, editing uh, of um, uh, dynamic web application content and uh, a launch 
launch application that is finalized to the uh, um, scheduling of releases uh, of batches of content uh, on a schedule and uh, on a calendar. Regarding uh, Contentful, the team, we are around 500 people. We have hubs in Berlin, Germany, and in the United States, we are in uh, Denver and San Francisco, and we have a growing uh, distributed team uh, in different locations around the world. Uh, what about you, Martin? So I work for Kinning Carter. We are a global uh, digital tech firm. Uh, we've got about 1,600 people now. We focus on large-scale digital transformation under our mission of making the world work better. So my role, I represent the external technical product from a European perspective, uh, and I have quite a focus on kind of the MarTech space, uh, modernization of legacy monolithic platforms to the more nimble cloud-native stacks and technologies like Contentful, which obviously can deliver at a global scale. So um, yeah, role is pretty much external always, but with occasional forays into the internal where necessary, but I, I try and stay away from that. (laughs) Wow. Well, uh, external is a whole other layer of of difficulty when it it comes to building tech products, for sure. Martin, how did you first get into technology? I'm over 40 now. So um, my first job in technology, I guess, was typing in programs for a Commodore 64 from the back of magazines. Nearly all of them failed. They used to crash instantly. I never saved them to tape. I was also an early adopter, I guess, of distributed comms. So I used to run BBS systems with uh, dial-up modems. That was also a lot of fun. I actually wanted to be an airline pilot and started training for that. Um, But then, of course, we had some major events early in the noughties. I rethought that as a strategy, given the cost. So I actually applied for a job as a Unix sysadmin at a pretty small digital outfit. And I've never looked back since. I get a flying fix from Fly Simulator or X-Plane these days, uh, which is a lot of fun. Fly Simulator is pretty cool. That's that's awesome. What about you, Paolo? Yeah, similar age as uh, Martin's, I guess, similar sort of experience. And uh, I mean, I think my interest in computer really started from seeing the early video games. And I guess it was still in primary school when friends had uh, these amazing machines that would allow for that. And then... Uh, Much later, my parents, when I was 15, actually gave me my first computer. And uh, one thing that I encountered soon after was really the world of the emerging 3D graphics. And somehow that that was my first exposure to the fact that in the computer there was another world in in a pretty realistic uh, way that was something that could be explored. And um, yeah, later on, uh, I was at university when... uh, studying actually um, engineering um, and uh, mechanical engineering. And um, yeah, there I discovered about Linux and the open source ecosystem and I became super passionate about that. And I realized that after getting my degree, I wouldn't eventually be working in the field of mechanical engineering, but much more something that had to do with Linux and uh, open source. And that's where I started and basically it's been a path on uh, that sort of technology since uh, this point. Wow, and so what led you to start Contentful? Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, there uh, it's quite interesting uh, regarding uh, the t- trajectory that got uh, that got me here. So I worked, you know, in uh, different uh, business uh, across Europe. Uh, I'm originally from Italy. Worked in the UK uh, and in Germany for um, a while. And uh, I was uh, back then working for a social uh, gaming company. I was looking a bit for my next thing to do and I wanted to join an early stage company because uh, I had a few experiences in growing startups and I found uh, that enjoyable and I was looking for another early experience. And uh, 
Then I met uh, in the startup uh, ecosystem uh, here in Berlin, I met uh, Sasha Maiko, founder at Contentful. And uh, he talked to me about this idea um, he was working on, which was an um, MVP that he was actually already selling and was a content management system for mobile application. That, that's how he was conceiving it uh, um, back then. And um, again, because I worked in many different businesses and uh, back then I was in social gaming, but before then I had some experience in advertisement and um, also a different experience in classified. And I seen all these environments as wildly underserved by content management solutions. Like in uh, social games, there is a lot of content, but there wasn't really anything that was useful to manage content of that sort. And uh, then what I realized is this idea that Sasha was working on was not only about content management for mobile apps, but was much more a valid idea for any content, any management of content that is um, as a need to be integrated in software and in uh, interactive application. So I thought the idea really had um, big potential. And I also thought that for me to join as a co-founder, a company was important to join um, in the context of a product for which I could also understand the product aspects and the customer aspects of uh, the company. And this for me was really a perfect fit because having a background as engineer, working in development team, I could actually work on a product um, that uh, allowed me to serve teams which were similar to the teams I was working on. So a direct relationship with the customer market and so on. And that's really what uh, yeah, convinced me to come on board on the crazy journey of the day zero uh, sort, of, uh, sort of startup. That is so exciting. Startups are always, it's it's exciting and scary and busy and fun. There, there's there's already always so many things to do. So for the non-developers that that are among your customers, what what are their roles in all of the content creation and the sites that you're making, the the products that you're making in this very digital first era? Okay, I think that's probably a split between kind of the content producers, so the people who write the words, um, and then kind of asset creators. So that could be digital assets like images, it could be video, it could be maybe kind of contained content that is a kind of a composition of all those different types of content. Yeah, well, and that and that's fair. And Paolo, I'm sure you see a lot of those as well over at Contentful. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that we really did realize, you know, in uh, in the process of obviously running uh, Contentful and following the journey is that uh, uh, the teams that work with digital content have really a multidisciplinary nature, like uh, Martin was saying regarding you know, there are digital uh, assets, uh, producers, and you know, over it is uh, images, video, sound, and so on. And then there are uh, content producers that can be pros, but there are also uh, people in charge of content that is more structured information, you could call it, or, uh, you know, pieces of uh, uh, structured content of other kind. And uh, I think one interesting aspect is also you can find in these multidisciplinary teams uh, uh, roles that usually are overlooked, uh, like... Uh, product manager or program manager of, or project managers that basically have the task of understanding how everything is coming together and uh, when we become fruitable, you know, when we come to fruition to the um, final uh, user of the digital experience. So this multidisciplinary aspect and these coordination and orchestration aspects of all these pieces of information and digital um, elements that need to come together is uh, you know, key to model digital experiences. And that's really what you see when it comes to the need of content management for modern digital experiences. 
And so, Martin, for all of the different content creators out there and, and just content in general, what does it mean for content to be agile, especially in today's digital climate? That's a really interesting one. Um, I think even before kind of the COVID um, of the last year, we did some research that showed that up to 70% of content didn't get utilized. I think it's really clear that we need to create quite a tight feedback loop between the, the overall content production uh, and the end user. And also what we believe passionately at Kinnick Carter is speed up that experimentation process to ensure that the content is landing. And you need to do that really quickly because of the speed of change. Uh, so content can almost be out of date the moment that it's published. Um, sensitivity is really sort of heightened. And we've seen that over the last years, you know, there's been a lot of faux pas, publishing out of date content, scheduling things incorrectly. So those old school kind of quite linear approaches, I think are jarring with the, the increasing customer expectation and you know, the nature of that instant always on online world. So what we kind of look to do to kind of make that content process quite a lot more agile is we have like VOC voice of the customer so you can really spot the issues and react quickly sort of in the moment. So that's like social media listening. We actually use machine learning on search terms. So we can actually feed those trends into the content producers and give them that real-time insight. Uh, and on the personalization side, um, you can have presets and kind of rules and, and parameters and boundaries around how you automate some of that customization for the segments of, of users that you want. And then even further than that, you've got that hyper-personalization um, where it's almost down to the individual. But that's really, really difficult to do, I think. Uh, it's funny because you know, we get asked a lot of that in briefs from customers who think it's just a, a switch that you tick and then all your content becomes absolutely personalized to that exact user. And, you know, in these days, it's it can be a bit creepy. I think it's, it treads the privacy line and I think we need to be really careful. Plus, I think you also need to know when to stop. You know, the ROI curve on doing that kind of drops off very quickly and it goes very expensive also. So you know, the returns are, are certainly diminishing. Martin, if I can ask a quick follow-up, that 70% number is really shocking to me. I think it's probably shocking to a lot of people. Did you have any any research or any even anecdotal insights on what the main drivers of that are? I think it's overproduction. I think uh, you know, the certain brands that we work with, some of them are really international brands, really think that everybody wants to know absolutely everything about their brand in every micro detail. So they over-index on all those types of, of content just to try and flood that site or whatever the channel is with this information that they think the user might want. And that's linked to what we said before with experimentation um, or, or lack of it and getting you know, the insight in real time almost to what people are looking at. So you get that really stale, long tail of, of stuff that gets put out there. It has to be managed. It has to go through compliance, et cetera. And you know, people aren't really bothered about it. So what we try and encourage people to do is you know, really slash and burn the, 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 the content that you're producing, really focus on the core messages you want people to, to read and be quite ruthless about that schedule and cycle that you go through when you're actually refreshing your, your content. You know, you, you ain't going to need it. Principle really, it does apply here as well. And that research was actually from a combination of ourselves and, and stuff we got from uh, Forrester. So um, I imagine they went fairly wide on, on that uh, sample set. 
That is really interesting. Just as as a developer who also makes content and stuff, it it's it's true because a lot of times we do want to cover every single use case that anyone could possibly want. But the grand majority of cases only need to see like these five core pages and not like the 50 that we made. I think some of it's maybe self-serving as if the marketing team needs to protect themselves almost as well. Overproducing content makes their jobs, you know, safe and, and irrelevant. Um, but actually, you know, they're, they're doing themselves and, and the, the firms that they're, they're promoting a disservice ultimately with lower engagement rates, you know, difficult to navigate sites, etc. So, you know, we've seen real positive benefits with encouraging that kind of um, behavior amongst the content creators. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, Paolo, I, I wanted to ask you a question because with all of these content creators and, and people making the, their sites, there's a big trend, I guess. I don't know if trend is the right word towards no code and low code types of tooling where, where you don't have to write a line of code to produce certain pieces of content or certain parts of sites. How do these no code, low code teams and tools empower groups to create digital content? Yeah, I guess, I mean, the, like you say, you know, is uh, I'm sure if uh, no code and no code are real uh, trends uh, or uh, just a mean to communicate something. And to me, th there are, uh, as an example, behind low code, you know, what's the, the underlying concept uh, behind this the slogan, which is low code. There is a concept that to me is much more about writing only, as an example, added value code. And uh, as we have experience as developers, you know, sometimes when you try to accomplish a task, you end up solving for some aspects that are not really related to the task that you are trying to accomplish. An example of this that was necessary back in the days was you will start from thinking about networking and configuring database. And then a long time after that, you will finally get to the thing that you were actually meant to be doing, uh, which maybe was publishing a, a website somewhere. And the principle of low code is really how can, um, can we make available an environment where people can only write code that is specific to their business. So it's business logic that is absolutely custom to what they are doing, or it stays in the domain of knowledge for which they are solving for. And as an example, in Codeful, we have the application framework, and what the application framework is, uh, is a framework that makes you available, a library and a set of uh, APIs and tools that allow you to build customized content uh, uh, generation and content creation environments. And, uh, you know, the tool set is complete with a lot of uh, high-level abstractions that allow you exactly to perform this task without being concerned with solving general content management problems that are already solved for you, you know, by API calls or components in the library. And part of this is also a design system, which, again, is optimized uh, to the production of um, editing interfaces so that you don't need to, again, go, uh, go in the depth of solving for how do I build a content editing interface, but you can only define the custom aspect of your content editing and um, uh, not be concerned with much more general and uh, deeper problems. So I, I think it is value-added code concept is a you know, better way of expressing what low code really means. And uh, I think regarding uh, you know the no-code approach is uh, really about how do you make available some capabilities that usually would require some degree of programming knowledge, but you express it in an interface that enables someone who doesn't have a programming skill to carry on these um, aspects. And, uh, you know, again, you can find uh, different uh, environments, like, for example, Airtable, let's say, you know, it's a typical example that is provided as no code, where it's possible to define uh, 
logic behavior in a way that is not written in code, but that is written, uh, is expressed through a yeah, visual interactive uh, uh, kind of uh, interface. So I think no code is much more about how can you stay in the skill set of a persona and let them accomplish a, an entire task staying in that uh, set of skill set. And um, I think, again, these are for sure more complicated definition, but a bit more useful to understand what's the context behind low code and um, no code. And these are for sure yeah, aspects that we take account in uh, when we think about you know, how to develop Contentful. And we, we don't define Contentful as a low code or no code platform, but we think which aspects of this concept are important where and where they you know, can be of uh, leveraging, again, in uh, letting someone accomplish a task without what is generally called accidental complexity, which is really you know, the complexity that gets in your way, but doesn't belong and is not a part of the task that you're trying to accomplish. Martin, do you see a lot of that with your customers, people interested in, in this type of technology, this low-code, no-code technology? Yeah, I think the low-code, no-code uh, approach has got different meanings to different people. I think certainly a lot of our clients you know, see the, the low-code platforms uh, and the business logic ones that you see, I won't name them, uh, and think, you know, it's just a drag and drop interface to do all of your business logic, and I don't need to touch a piece of code ever again. And I think that's when they're severely disappointed around the resulting user experience. You know, I guess a WYSIWYG interface of a traditional CMS is, is quite similar to a low-code platform. It's drag and drop of these predefined components, Um but they always get into trouble, you know, with these things. I think that, you know, the scope of the offer around low code needs to be done as Paolo said. It needs to be, you know, value add is absolutely the right term. I think it, it's solving those, you know, abstracting those um, problems, um, you know, and providing that platform that does that, but still giving you that, you know, giving you the understanding, giving the clients understanding that you're still going to need to write some actually code that actually elevates that overall experience to the level that your customers expect. It's not just a, a case of point, click and forget. I think that's really important. Yeah, I, I tend to like to think of it as it allows you to not reinvent the wheel for a lot of cases. You might still have to do your own customization of quite a few different things, but the fact that you could just use some predefined things that are made for you, you can customize and then build on top of, that's that's where the biggest value is for someone like me. Yeah, definitely. I think the traditional CMS vendors, you know, the big suite vendors that we've we've all heard of, kind of got they they're to blame for a lot of this misconception. I think, you know, when they're sold as out of the box platforms, drag and drop everything. And actually people don't realize that you know, you, you install these huge packages of software. And then you have to spend five times the cost again on actually customizing the whole thing to actually do what it was sold to you in the first place. Uh, I think the industry in general needs to kind of get away from, from that and be more honest with the, the customers uh, around the, the level of actual you know effort that you need still need to do to make a meaningful experience that differentiates. Yeah, I guess no code has all the downside of uh, all the movements that define themselves about what they are not versus what uh, what they are. And again, the, the absence of coding need is not by itself a value. And again, it can be highly constraining or you know it can leave uh, on top of uh, a lot of uh, assumptions that might not necessarily be correct. And that's exactly what Martin is saying. Like you know, there are some environments that have sold us, but no code because there is no code to be written, but actually they don't really serve 
um, they propose and they again don't necessarily enable um, the, the right functions or uh, the right outcomes, and, and they are just you know big piles uh, of uh, apparently clever widgets which um, come with. Uh, a lot of assumption and coupling of what happens behind the scene when you use the tool that after R, once you get into and uh, you, you want to flex, uh, you find out are very rigid and built you somehow in a fishbowl from which you cannot any longer uh, escape. So going along these lines with the big CMS vendors and, and traditionally what, what that used to be, I've personally been seeing a really big push towards headless content management systems. Martin, what does going headless mean? How how would this make people's lives easier? See, I'm I'm not a huge advocate of the tech angle. I think that, you know it's been done to death. That you can use any technology you like. Yeah, it's a benefit, but you know, everybody sort of bangs the same drum. It, it's only useful for developers that, um, and it, it's sort of innovation. But in the larger firms that we work with, they tend to want to stick with software development standards for years. We've got huge development teams. They want to avoid that cost to change. And you know, arguably, if you're in a fairly static world, you know, your content doesn't change that much, then a monolithic platform will probably do, do just fine. But where it really starts to shine for me, Headless, I think when you've got a lot of change occurring, um, so a lot of content being created, the business is pivoting or entering new markets, I think that decoupling really ensures that you can keep that velocity you need to deliver new features across multiple teams that may be working on different parts of that overall digital estate. And you use a single source of truth uh, for your content. And I think we've seen that play out you know, in the last 12 months more than ever. You know, entire business plans have gone in, out the window and people have had to pivot because of COVID. They need to get content out to more channels. They need to create new experiences to attract customers that they maybe didn't have before. I think monolithic approach yeah, you tend to have a monolithic team working on that platform and that creates a really tight coupling between that desired velocity from the, the marketing team or the business team and the actual developers. And I've you know, played out with some examples for you. you know, we've seen an entire system, non-headless systems had to be deployed because somebody wanted to add a new field just to a piece of content. You know, you'll never, ever get that problem with Contentful because of the decoupling. Um, and that actually took two weeks to get that release done with IT. You, know, you can create an entirely new business in two weeks these days. Another observation I'd say uh, from Headless and the benefit to marketers and other people is they really cut back to that essential. And I think it's the low code point you made earlier you know the UIs are far faster there's a standard uh, system that there's really emphasis on uh, making it simple for the job to be done and again I've got some good anecdotal evidence there and um, we've just migrated a very long-standing client away onto a headless platform they had to wait between 10 20 seconds to load a page of content before it could be ready for editing because of the constraints of having an on-prem infrastructure, the, the Rube Goldberg machine of the actual old system, the complexity of it. And since going headless, that's instant. You know, it, it, they don't have that, that, that pain is taken away from them. And those 10 or 20 seconds a time multiplied by thousands of edits per year, multiplied by multiple content editors, really bites into the return and investment. You know, it, it really takes away from the velocity that they're able to achieve. So I see that as the, one of the real benefits of, uh, of headless platforms. I think the key word that you dropped in there a couple times is decoupling. 
and the fact that all a headless system is, it's, it's a scary name for something that's, that is relatively simple. It's decoupling the CMS from the rest of your gigantic monolith code base that you mentioned. And I, I know for myself, it has made my life a lot easier to, to go this headless way and, and decouple all kinds of different services, not just CMSs, but everything from the database to the authentication system. Being able to have all of these separate things means if one thing breaks, the entire service doesn't break. It's just this one thing and you can you can work with it there. Yeah, and I think uh, you know decoupling is for sure you know the default definition of the benefits of uh, headless decoupling. Well, decouples your content from presentation, and uh, I think uh, the, you know a point where Martin touched that it is uh, you know good to make explicit is really you know as soon as uh, the life cycle of your content differs from the life cycle of your presentation, or you have multiple presentations and different presentation of your content, you know the, the benefit becomes. Uh, Huge, and you really understand that the you know the life of your content and uh, where the content come from and go to are um, all things that you want to manage explicitly and deliberately, and you don't want to be in an environment that essentially rigidly defines uh, you know how content lives in function of which sort of uh, outlet ultimately the content goes to, and um, you know what you are building uh, in a, a headless decoupled system is much more. You know, sort of self-standing data set and a repository of knowledge of information that you can recycle, re-expose, and work on independently from the use of these you know, information and knowledge that is contained um, in, uh, um, in the content management system. So um, th that's a very important concept. And I think you know, looking at where the whole ecosystem is evolving, you know, like headless, I think, is one aspect. But you know, as it you evolve more towards the concept of a content platform, you find aspects like, as an example, integration. So it's like, how can you create more and more, you know, point of intersection of content and other sort of information that comes maybe from product information management systems or uh, e-commerce systems uh, or different uh, sort of uh, provisioning uh, um, systems uh, um, or personalization systems and so on. And, uh, you know, being able to manage all this relationship as facts and uh, as pure data rather than, you know, manage them in relationship to the way you want to present them or the way the interaction about these aspects is for. Uh, is very powerful and is uh, important and uh, makes content basically an asset for a company versus just being a packaged sort of information or a publication, uh, which is really where content management rather started as a, as a need. I think just to add to that, um, I think some of the things that we need to overcome in this space is kind of bringing the laggards up to speed. A lot of briefs, you know, we answer a lot of RFPs on the new digital experiences. You know, the default position, uh, I'm sure we've all seen this, is to want to recreate everything in the old platform in new technology. So we see things like WYSIWYG, uh, pasting from Microsoft Word, um, all that kind of stuff that lived in a monolithic um, DXP platform. Um, I think part of our job is to really educate people on the different ways to, to generate things like previews rapidly. And I think, you know, technology like um, the Jamstack um, movement, which is, you know, massive things like Next.js with its incremental builds, you can create all that preview functionality almost instantly nowadays. Um, so they can actually see across any channel um, what that's going to be like. Um, so ad addressing those kind of legacy needs and educating people who've worked with 
old tech for 10 years, for example, is a big part of the job, I think, to, to really you know, cut away the stuff that actually we don't need to be able to do the job well, which is publishing content. Um, so really taking that away makes, I think people actually see over time, um, and it's quite quick, how actually you know these systems really let them get to the meaning of what they're actually writing rather than concerning with every last pixel of how it's going to be presented because that's going to be taken care of with by the developers um, with these type of previews. Yeah, this is literally what my job is, uh, focusing on, on Jamstack stuff. I mean, I work at Netlify. Um, and, and so we touch a lot on these CMSs and how to make incremental builds for all the different frameworks and how to make these kinds of previews every single time a content change happens. And it is kind of cool to see the mind shift of people who aren't used to this sort of thing, where they're just like, Wait, okay, so because these are separate, I don't have to care about this. I can just I can just focus on on my particular task and and even developers not having to worry about getting the copy in 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 the git repo and then the content marketers, the content creators not having to worry about where their content will live. They just write it. It's very, very cool to see the mind shift as everybody kind of adopts that sort of architecture. Yeah, it's, in, it's interesting how what um, yeah you Cassidy and Martin just said is related to the concept of pipeline. Like you know the the, the modern way and uh, you know the efficiency that we can achieve today is related to the having really this pipeline uh, you know of uh, tools that go all together, of which you know content management is one one piece of uh, the pipeline, you know, and then it goes into the part that, uh, you know, and triggers the part that renders the experience and it renders it at every change. So you can see whatever you do, how my actual, my final experience changed and I can see different versions at the point in time I want uh, to see it. And in order to do this, you really need to have tools that are conceived as pipelines, you know, where, where it's very clear how everything is wired to everything else. And these are not just self-contained, you know, monolithic uh, environments. And that's really where the two paradigm of uh, old approach and new approach really differ, you know, how, you know, a evented pipeline versus a environment which is completely self-contained and uh, is defined by itself. Either Paolo or Martin, uh, I was wondering, you know, in, in talking about all this, talking a lot about principles and concepts, but could you take us maybe through an example of an implementation and, and give us kind of a, a taste of what the results are like for an implementation like one of these? Sure, I, I can take that. Um, typically, we try and decouple the content model. Um, first of all, if we're going to start from the, from the actual system, um, we, we want to try and make sure that people understand the relationships between the different types of content, almost offline. So it's a lot of post-it notes, uh, mirror boards, um, that kind of modeling first. And then we can take that into um, kind of scripts, really, to populate the, the content model within Contentful. Um, it's, it's really great for that. You don't have to kind of manually create all of the scheme of fields and things like that, um, which maybe you had to do in other systems. So it's really automatable, and you can actually version control it as well, which is quite nice. So you can see that graph of change uh, over time as well. Typically, we do in some kind of migration project at this point. Uh, that's a lot of what we do. So. Very rarely do we start with a net new, um, a greenfield implementation where you're just, you know, creating your content from scratch. So a lot of effort is uh, put into looking at um, the existing content structure. Usually it's very dirty, polluted. You know, they may have pasted um, Word documents directly into um, a field in the old CMS, so we need to kind of tidy all that up. 
And then we, we try and look to automate as much as possible, breaking that content out in, in the old system uh, and kind of mapping it into field sets into the, um, the new platform. It's not always possible. Uh, I think that's a, a misconception. Um, people tend to create content debt uh, in old systems, which, which I call it. So this is where you've actually bent the system to do something new uh, because of the inflexibilities of uh, sort of monolithic platforms. So you end up with such very subtle variants of the same thing um, over and over again. And that can amplify quite significantly if you've got 30, 40, 50,000 pieces of content that you have to migrate. So there is some manual work. Um, and that's when we typically encourage the, the slash and burn. So it's like, actually, do you really need this piece of content? So that reduces the overall scope of uh, migration down. Uh, and then it's a case of getting it into the system early. Um, and then we kind of integrate that into our, it depends on the actual scope of the projects. It may be e-commerce, it may just be a, a pure play content brochureware site. But we try and integrate um, all our pipelines fairly quickly. We tend to use Figma and, and tools like that for prototyping. And we try and use the real content as much as possible, which again is great because of Contentful's uh, API-driven um, world. It's really easy to, to see the reality and iterate on that very quickly. And then we'll take it to code. Depends on the implementation tech, there's, there's many. Uh, we do a lot with Next, Nuxt, insert your favorite JavaScript framework of the week here. And then, you know, it's CI, CD all the way, uh, usually cloud native. We tend to build everything on the cloud. Use Netlify, um, you'll ha be happy to hear uh, Cassidy. Um, uh, other competitors are available. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we could say that, but yeah, that's the typical process. And it's it sounds lengthy, but actually it's really quick to get from A, a to B to a point where you're actually iterating on a valuable product rather than just creating the, um, the plumbing uh, and, and those pipelines. And I think we leverage a lot of tools in this that are really modern, like we use a lot of... Um, uh, GitHub Actions nowadays, things things like that. You know, it takes away even from the containerization that was the the, the flavor of the month from recent years. So, using something like Netlify, I'm sure you know it's just the simplest um, deploy, and that's it. Um, we're, we're in production, so it's super simple now to get something that's production grade running very very quickly. It's so nice and fast that like I was using these kinds of technologies before actually working there. So I'm not trying to just be a shill uh, for for uh, like Jamstack and Netlify and stuff. But but it really is so powerful how fast you can go when you have all of these decoupled things that kind of just have an API to themselves and you run it and it works. And it's kind of like you say, at first it might be a little intimidating because it sounds like all of these different things. But Really, it's it's like Lego blocks. You're just attaching things, and it builds a building pretty quickly. I actually think it's the Jamstack. I'm really passionate about it, and I try and advocate for enterprise. You know, enterprise traditionally they might go down a, a hosted front end. They might use Kubernetes to do that on a cloud provider, for example. But I actually think it's the future for for enterprise. And when they actually realize the value from the, these kind of tools, it'll, that front-end kind of experiential layer of, of a digital estate is going to be transformed by by Netlify and and, and similar. Um, it kind of it is the abstraction that is missing. I think we don't want to be managing any infrastructure for that layer. We can connect into all these um, event-driven pipeline tools a matter of a single click. In some cases, or an API call, it's an absolute game changer. And I think. 
you know, it's only just starting to get that kind of enterprise adoption. I think there was a lot of early adopters in forward-thinking product companies. I'm sure we can name many, but actually getting to the you know the meat of that big enterprise world, which is a bit slow. That's that's where I'm really interested uh, in promoting these kind of technologies. Right. Yeah. No, I, I could also give so many different use cases for it because it's it's amazing to see. I, w- I was just talking to a company who switched their architecture over recently and they kind of accidentally went viral with, with this one live streamer talking about their service and they had like hundreds of thousands of people hitting their website at once and they had no performance hits because of how they decoupled everything. They pre-built as much as they could. And, and it's just very cool to see those kinds of benefits and, and how they're hitting businesses more and more. Okay, well, this is CIO Classified, so we got to talk about some secrets, of course. Um, So I would like to ask both of you, what is one secret that you learned in your career that not enough executives know? I'm not actually that clever, um, so I'm not going to give some super deep philosophical answer that I I know um, um, know, is a game changer for the entire world. Uh, And I'm also not a good listener, so I'm going to give two answers to to that question. so an internal level, I, I think getting to know as many people as possible in, in our business as well as possible. It's amazing in this day and age that you still see people kind of my level of similar that they kind of shut themselves off from the real world or they kind of limit themselves to a, a circle because they see themselves not oh, too important. Uh, I've got an executive title, you know, I don't need to deal with this, this people. But I think Without any people, you're just running an empty building. Um, and it, in our world, that means you go out of business very quickly. So I really like from the top down is you, know, you get to know everybody in that organization. You just don't know where the next piece of innovation or game-changing um, thought is going to come from. Uh, and I've experienced that um, firsthand. So I am a strong believer in that. But I also think the second one is a good general awareness of all aspects of business. So I'm a tech specialist by my role title, but I try and add as much value and gain as much knowledge in other business areas. Because I think it can, from a techie looking in, it can offer a different perspective on certain problems that you're facing. Um, and I have to say that Kidding Carter, the place I work, is culturally brilliant at supporting this kind of activity. Um, and I've worked and you know, with and in firms that have those really defined boundaries from where your job starts and ends. And I think you lose that kind of that crossover and you know everybody works in silos if you think like that and that's not how you uh, advance your business in in this day and age mm. what about you paulo yeah i guess i mean i'm not sure if there are secrets uh, you know and uh, that are really not uh, known but for sure there are things that i think are constantly you know under considered uh, or uh, somehow uh, yeah not not um, for about uh, enough and they Think you know in, in my experience something that is uh, often um, you know one aspect uh, on these lines is uh, the connection between uh, technology and uh, the audience and the community ar- around the technology. Uh, so, for example, I think there is a lot of uh, talking in abstract about what's the best technology for whichever purpose uh, is being discussed, and uh, you know not often is it said about. What's the best technology for this group of people in this context uh, in the light of this um, purpose? And uh, I think, uh, you know, as an example, when the whole microservice uh, phenomenon came about, you know, then there was a big debate about 
what is good and what is bad, you know, and what is the right uh, one way of doing things, and uh, uh, what should we all religiously um, think about? And uh, I think that that's just one example of a movement that, for example, was very concerned about what is uh, good or bad in absolute terms uh, to do versus thinking uh, about okay, this might be a good approach for which sort of organizations, in which kind of context, under uh, which kind of conditions, and um, in which other cases that there is some merit to other approaches. Yeah, I really feel this, uh, you know, human aspect of, uh, you know, the, the connection between what's the community, what's the team that will work with a technology is, uh, yeah, quite often understated and uh, misunderstood and, and really conducts to yeah, taking risks or uh, adventuring uh, in um, implementations that uh, yeah, end up having a very adventurous path and uh, maybe not related to the right outcomes. Well, this has been so awesome. Before we do sign off for the day, I wanted to know, do either of you have questions for each other that you want to ask? Yeah, I've got one. It's a forward-looking question, so no uh, no pressure, uh, Paolo, but what do you think is going to be the game-changing innovation in kind of this DX, digital experience space, in the next five years? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously a very big question. I mean, I think something that we are already seeing is, uh, you know, a trend that we call connected to the augmented uh, reality kind of uh, principle. And uh, I really feel that, uh, you know, if you lock your mobile uh, phone somewhere, uh, you are suddenly in the same place, but it's not quite the same place that it was uh, even just with your mobile without thinking about futuristic technologies that render uh, um, augmented reality. And um, I really feel that, uh, you know, digital experiences are... Uh, more and more becoming part of uh, how we live and uh, how we expect uh, um, anything to happen. And uh, even when we deal with the physical world, we always expect to somehow have some digital counterparty or digital component of the product uh, or the services that we um, buy. And that's really why I think, uh, you know, going uh, in a more and more augmented direction and uh, connected to the topic of uh, you know, content and that, and what content um, uh, is, you know, trying to strive to achieve, I think we will see more and more uh, in-context and functional content, uh, you know, in interactive kind of environments. And uh, I think uh, this can be in a, you know, two-dimensional sort of interaction. And uh, I think, you know, maybe we'll see some of the fancy stuff that is more three-dimensional and mixed um, uh, digital and um, uh, physical reality. But I feel that that's to me the the, the trend. We're, we're really, you know, content uh, and um, digital is meshed to physical, and uh, everything somehow comes together. And that's what I think: content in context and content uh, in interactive uh, uh, applications is really the the future trend to to look for. And do you have any questions for Martin? Yeah, one question that we really have is uh, 2020 has been, of course, a year of drastic change because we've been forced into it. And one thing I was curious about is, have you seen some differences regarding the demands that came up uh, during this year versus the previous uh, uh, years? Like, you know, did, did it trigger some different trend? Yeah, I think one of the biggest ones that we certainly saw was that strive to make digital experiences as inclusive as possible. You know, you've got the accessibility movement. Um, we have a specific 
team that runs what's called Design with Empathy. So we make sure by default our digital experiences are, you know, as inclusive as possible and, and as simple as possible so everybody can gain access. Um, I think that really accelerated, I think, with COVID and, you know, the strive to go digital and, you know, to be, you know, the bottom line is firms wanting to maintain the revenue streams and, and open up new um audiences um so i think we, we've definitely seen that um trying to attract what they call that purple pound in the uk you know it's a massively underserved market and i think uh, we've just joined the valuable 500 which was announced uh, yesterday so actually making those experiences by default as inclusive as possible something which has been asked for and something which we deliver on really well on the other the flip side is digitizing non-digital processes you know there was a real push early in the, the pandemic to to really do that uh, and to sort of limit touch points where people go into physical experiences you know in store etc so we did a lot with a large retailer um in the uk to, to really simplify and you know help them transition to a uh, online delivery and things like that which is something that they typically didn't do uh, before so there's been a lot of that as well well this has been so awesome and interesting and i love talking about all of this but we are out of time so thank you so much paulo thank you so much martin for your time today and uh until next time hope you all have a great one thank you it's been a pleasure thank you it's been a pleasure this episode of cio classified is brought to you by okta Okta is a complete access management platform for your workforce and customers, securing all your critical resources from cloud to ground. Okta ensures your employees and customers have access to the right tools at the right time from any location and any device. Learn more about the leader in identity-driven security at okta.com. That's O-K-T-A dot com.